we often ask ourselves, hey, if a nuclear bomb fell on this company's headquarters and you know sort of wiped out and it was able to follow the branches and wiped out the whole company globally, would it matter? You know, and there's lots of companies where you say, not really. You know, when I think about it that way, not really. But in the example of semiconductors, there are a few companies that really matter. So one company in Europe, ASML, makes all the leading edge lithography for the world that allow Moore's Law to take place. You wipe out that one company, you put the world back a decade, two decades, I don't know, a long time. Welcome to the Stock Podcast, the only investing podcast where you get to hear interviews with public company CEOs and CFOs. However, every once in a while, I get the chance to interview industry and subject matter specialists. And this is one of those episodes. The Stock Podcast is really excited to have Brad Slingerland and Britton Johns on the program. Brad and Britton were former co-workers of mine. Actually, they were more like bosses. They both used to work at Janus Capital, which is now Janus Henderson, and they ran the tech fund. So these guys ran the Janus Tech Fund and they managed the tech team. And they did a really, really phenomenal job. I'm not just blowing smoke here. These guys headed up one of the most well-functioning sector teams within the entire company. And not only did they do a great job running the group, but they did a phenomenal job managing other people's money. From when Brad and Brenton took over the Janus Tech Fund in May 2011 until about November 2018, the Janus Tech Fund's performance, well, it's up 183%. So that's almost 15% annualized. Now, that's a big deal in and of itself, but what's an even bigger deal is that the Janus Tech Fund outperformed the S&P 500 on an annualized basis by about 248 basis points and then they also beat their Morningstar category by about 222 basis points. And now they're starting their own fund called NZS Capital. But not only are these guys great investors, they're really awesome human beings. They agreed to come onto the podcast to talk about their investment philosophy that they've developed over the past, well, couple decades because they've been investors for a long time. In addition, Brad Slingerland writes up weekly newsletter. It's called Stuff I Thought About Last Week. And it's an awesome newsletter. The former CEO of Twitter, Adam Bain, even said, and I quote, Brad Slingerland's stuff I thought about last week is the best read you're not subscribed to. Without further ado, let's get to Brad Slingerland and Britton Johns from NZS Capital. Brad and Britton, thank you very much for coming onto the program. Yeah, thanks for, we're glad to do it. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. So could we start out with your background? Yeah, the short version is I worked at uh, Janus Capital, which is a large mutual fund company for about 17 years. I actually started on the phones there um, and then became a research associate and eventually an analyst. Brad was one of my first bosses as an analyst and then uh, eventually started to manage the tech team and then manage the portfolio. And Brad and I, somewhere along the line, became peers and really uh, began to understand very quickly that we could think well together. We thought better together in, in some instances than we thought apart from each other. And out of that, over a long period of time and a lot of frustration, a lot of you know mistakes in investing came sort of a unified investing philosophy that made a lot of sense to us. So that's my quick background. I'm uh, Craig, this is Brad. Um, I started at uh, Janus Capital, which is now Janus Henderson, uh, also in 1998. 
as a summer intern. Started there full time in 2000, so I got to um, experience the um, the euphoria of the last couple of years of the dot com bubble, followed by the, the pain of the, the crash. Um, and then uh, I started as a small cap generalist. I kind of covered a bunch of sectors, always a little bit of tech, um, but anything from entertainment to retail, a little bit of healthcare, sort of anything under about two billion in market cap. And then started specializing in tech in 2003. Uh, so began managing the analyst team of tech analysts, which is about when um, Brendan uh, joined in as well, or a little bit after that. And uh, have been was managing the global tech fund starting in 2011, uh, working with Brenton. And it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun to learn about all the areas of the tech sector and sort of live and breathe disruption and innovation for, for 20 years now. Could you guys talk a little bit about what you're doing today after leaving Janus and, and starting your own fund, right? Yeah, so we're really excited. Earlier this year, we formed uh, NZS Capital. And I'll take a minute to explain uh, what the N, the Z, and the S stand for because it's not obvious. Um, but one of the pillars of our investment framework is um, is really looking for companies that create win-win outcomes for not just their shareholders, but for their employees, their customers, also the environment and society at large. And so NZS is an acronym for non-zero-sum. Non-zero-sum is an outcome in game theory, but that's kind of how, how we think about the world. And when you're creating a non-zero-sum, a positive-sum outcome, everybody's winning. And oftentimes, a company is creating more value for their customers than they are for themselves. And that ends up making it a good company to invest in. And that philosophically aligns with what we want to accomplish with NZS Capital, is we want to create more value for our clients, um, for our employees, and, and society environment at large, which we, we know sounds like sort of a silly goal for an asset manager, but we think it's, it's just increasingly important. And so NZS Capital is based on our... Um, our investing framework called complexity investing, which I'm sure we'll get into. And it's uh, very similar to the way we've, we've managed money for a long time. We'll be focused on the tech sector, but also sectors that are being impacted by tech, which is pretty much the whole, the whole world now. So very much focused on innovation and growth. So, so this idea of NZS, um, actually one of the first times I came across the concept besides learning about it in, um, statistics and, and math for, for physics classes um, 20 years ago was a book called Non-Zero Sum by Robert Wright. Um, it's a really interesting book. Um, if anybody wants to learn more about this, I recommend checking it out. I think it's about 10 years old now, but you should still be able to, to find it. And it goes through the history of basically human civilization and how we have grown and progressed and continue to progress as, as a society um, by creating these win-win interactions. And it's just this sort of fundamental, um, seems to be a fundamental element of human interaction. And we think it applies to business also. And so we wrote about NZS in a white paper that we finished um, back in 2014. And so it's, it's one of the characteristics of many that we look for in companies. Uh, and maybe, Brenton, if you want to talk about that that white paper a little bit? Yeah, so um, the white paper was really a, sort of a product of us investing for a long time and making our fair share of mistakes. We realized that we, we had these heuristics in place for, for managing a portfolio, but they didn't really materialize for us in the words until we began reading about complexity science. And so complex systems is an area that we're really fascinated about. 
the first book we sort of tackled on this topic was written by Eric Beinhocker called The Origin of Wealth. And then the following one uh, was uh, called Complexity by Milch, Mitch Waldrop, I believe. Both of the authors had spent a lot of time at the Santa Fe Institute. And so very quickly we realized that the Santa Fe Institute was a special place that we wanted to get closer to. We attended a four-day seminar at Stanford put on by the Santa Fe Institute in Complexity. Um, and that's where really we began to put legs onto this investing framework. Uh, I don't really remember when we started writing it, probably 2013. And it sort of came a chapter at a time, slowly at first, and then began building. And we realized, oh, wow, we actually managed the portfolio uh, to these standards quite a bit already. But articulating them just made everything so much more crisp. And especially we, we did change one big area where we managed portfolios um, in the process. We figured out that we basically stranded a lot of capital in the portfolio, about a third of the capital, in names that we did not consider either what we call resilient or optional. Uh, these were names that were sort of garpy. They were growth at a reasonable price or not too expensive, but really not optional, but kind of expensive, so really not resilient either. And what we figured out is over eight years in, in those types of names, we had basically market performed. Whereas names that were highly optional, we were running at smaller positions in the tail, and we, uh, we did very well there. And then names that were highly resilient, uh, we ran as larger concentrated positions in the head of the portfolio, and we did very well there. So we uh, finished the paper up in 2014, sort of put it out there to the world because we realized that other people's comments are just going to make us better. And we've learned a ton since then, but the heart of the investing philosophy remains the same. Could, could you describe the resiliency and the optionality? You, you talked about them um, briefly there, but what does that mean for, for you guys? Sure. So when we think about resilience, the first thing we're thinking about is not losing. Um, and so the big part of performing well over time is not losing, uh, because to win, first thing you need to do is not lose. Um, seems obvious. Uh, it, those positions, we have a narrow range of outcomes is the way we think about them. So we know that humans are, are really terrible at you know, lots of things, but one of them is certainly predictions. We can, we can study empirical data and we can say humans are really good at being overconfident but not really good at predicting the future. Um, so when we think about these large resilient positions, what we're trying to do is minimize the number of predictions we're making about a company. And with that narrow range of outcomes, we feel comfortable in owning those as large positions. So we may only run 15 positions in the head of the portfolio, and let's say that's roughly half the portfolio. But in the tail of the portfolio, coming to the optionality piece, we may have 50 names. Uh, we may, may have less um, or more, depending on the global context. And in the tail of the portfolio, we're really looking at asymmetry. So this is more of a classic VC-type model, venture capital-type model, where we can lose more than we win, but the names are so asymmetric that we can still win. Uh, so the asymmetry is incredibly important. What is the opportunity set for that company? Um, now, we don't know, what we've proven to ourselves over time is we don't know which ones are going to work. <laughs> um, again, that's a prediction that 
just humans aren't very good at. Uh, but we, we do know if we pick the right qualities in those companies and we distribute that tail to the right to enough companies that we're highly likely to get a few that are going to go from the tail. They're going to graduate all the way to the head of the portfolio where those range of outcomes that were re once really wide narrow down and we're going to feel very comfortable owning that as a three or four percent position. And I think what's important about this portfolio construction process where you combine the resilience half of the portfolio with the optionality half is, you know, it's important to look at traditional risk metrics on a portfolio, but it's more important to look at what the fundamental risk of uh, investment is and then to balance that out across the portfolio. So the way this framework works is say a very large position, five, six, seven, eight, nine percent position in a resilient stock is going to contribute about the same amount of risk to the portfolio as a 0.5% position in an optionality stock. And so that's really important to know um, what the risk of the businesses that you're investing in, what the range of outcomes is. The narrower the range of outcomes, the fewer the predictions that go into an investment, the more resilient it's going to be, the bigger the position. Conversely, the wider the range of outcomes, meaning we think we have a sense about the way the world is going to play out, but we don't know for sure. Uh, it could go this way or that way or some completely unknown direction, the smaller the position that should be. And a lot of mistakes you see in the investment industry are, in, you know, portfolio managers having, um, quote unquote, conviction around an idea and not taking into account the risk that that position may contribute to the portfolio on an individual stock basis. So this was something that really important that came out of complex adaptive systems. You know, th the biggest lesson on complex adaptive systems is, you know, you can't predict the future. You can you can look at a range of probabilities on outcomes, but if you are trying to pin down a specific scenario that things are going to play out, there's no way you're going to be right. And if you are, it was just pure luck. So it's really taking that that luck out of the portfolio and being thoughtful about portfolio construction and then the stocks that that go in. And and one other um, comment on that is a particular type of, type of stock we look for we call RUTMO, which stands for resilience with out of the money optionality. And so this is a business that has a, a particularly resilient core stream of free cash flow, but is able through, through various different means, um, add on optionality to the business that you're not paying for in what the stock is priced at today. So we're ideally looking for RootMo, we're ideally looking for an optionality position that can graduate into a resilient position. But as Britton said earlier, we're cutting out everything in the middle. If it's not resilient or optional or a combination of those two, then you tend to strand capital in these, these businesses that um, could be put to better use in a stock that's much more likely to outperform. And just, just to tag on the end really fast um, and bring it home, uh, when we first analyzed the portfolio and cut it these different ways between position sizes, one of the things that stuck out was were, were a few mistakes that we'd made. And in the the most common mistake that we made that really hurt us the most was we took these optional positions where there was really a wide range of outcomes. And because of our research and conviction, which was really overconfidence, we put them as, uh, we made them resilient positions. Uh, and when something happened and the stock went down 50% for whatever reason, uh, it, it really hurt us. And so, um, after studying that mistake that we made, we looked at a lot of other people's portfolios too. And it turns out that's just a really common mistake that people make. Um, 
which of course didn't make us feel any better, but it, it did make us think, okay, what can we do to inoculate ourselves from that mistake? Because it seems to be a human flaw. Of course, we know that overconfidence is a massive human flaw. And so that's when we really brought the team into this portfolio construction um, process and, and tasked the team with, of course, doing great research and all the things that, that a good investment team does, but, but also identifying bias in other team members. And so they can, we gave them permission to say, hey, Bryn, uh, I know you think this is a resilient business, but you've kind of just drunk the Kool-Aid. You know, this is actually not resilient. You have a bias. You may, maybe you like the CEO or you like the business model or you're always a sucker for this setup or whatever the reason is. The team is really good at identifying that because it's really easy to identify bias in other people, but it's very difficult to identify bias in yourself. And when you give the team permission to to help you identify bias in yourself, it's, it's uncomfortable, um, but it's ultimately extremely helpful in terms of avoiding these types of mistakes where you put these highly optional names as resilient and, and call it conviction or call it whatever you want. Um, many times it's overconfidence. Yeah. Can, can you provide an example of a stock, for example, that you know, was at the tail and then you know, moved itself up in terms of just how much you owned, how much you wanted to own because of its resiliency? So a stock that would be classic resilience for us is a company called Amphenol. Amphenol is a, a connector company. Uh, so I hope that's vague enough. Um, uh, <laughs> the prediction on a company like Amphenol, which sells connectors, connectors are in all electronic devices. That's how the semiconductors and the board and the software all work together. They have these specialized connectors in them, usually in the guts of the, of the device. So don't think about like the USB port, but think about how the guts of the device are assembled. The prediction we're making with a company like that is a very broad prediction. We believe that electronics are going to push deeper into the world. Now, we would say that's a pretty narrow range of outcomes, right? So electronics are almost certainly likely to push deeper into the world. Uh, you know, we've got... Um, the Internet of Things, we've got AI, we've got, you know, all these things, right? Uh, so, so very safe prediction. Then, then the question is, okay, well, how do you sort of express that idea within a company? Turns out the connector market is a huge market. The TAM is around $70 billion, so very big TAM, um, the TAM being the total available market. Very big TAM. And then we look at the companies themselves and we say, okay, in that 70 billion, about 10 companies are half that TAM and about 1,000 companies are the other half. So extremely fragmented, which we love because, of course, it gives companies that have a structural advantage like Amphenol uh, a long runway of growth. They can grow with the market, which grows 6 to 8% a year, and they can grow through consolidating the market um, and taking those companies and adding them under the, the corporate umbrella of Amphenol. And they do both extremely well. So that that's sort of an example of a name that we will own as a resilient position probably for a very long time. Because the probability of us being right on a company like Amphenol, which has a very long runway for growth, this year is pretty good. And next year it's pretty good. And probably five years from now, it's still going to be pretty good because the runway for growth is so long. This duration of growth is so long. And with a resilient position, we think about this duration of growth a lot uh, because one area that we see people tend to get wrong is... If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, just visit thestockpodcast.com. 
Members have access to all full-length episodes, and depending on the membership that you purchase, you can even have access to the transcripts. So just go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. Also, if you really enjoyed the music, you should check out Danheim. That's D-A-N-H-E-I-M. Mike at Danheim gave me permission to use the music for the podcast, and so a huge thanks to Danheim. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.